I used to work at MTV Networks around 1999 or so. And I started off in the MTV video library, which I got through a temp job through just a regular temp service. And the video library was a, sort of a glorified, well, a glorified video store, really. I mean, it kind of is what it what you think it is. Uh, but the goal for anyone who had greater ambitions in television who worked there, such as myself, was to make friendly with producers and production assistants and even interns who would show up at the window uh, looking to check out videos. You make friendly with them, you pour on the charm, and if they like you, then perhaps they'll put you on a project and you'll you'll escape. <laughs> uh, so working the window was uh, prime real estate at the MTV Video Library back in the day. And boy, howdy, did I ever work that window. Um, and, uh, and I ended up befriending uh, producers from Nickelodeon. And uh, so someone actually put me on a project. They had recommended me for, um, it was just a few weeks, of uh, essentially combing through every Elton John live performance ever made. Uh, that MTV had in its possession and for specific sound bites or specific visuals that these producers had in mind. So they sort of craft the arc of the story or the advertisement and you plug it in like a Mad Lib. Um, you give them several different options and hopefully one of them works or back to the drawing board. Uh, now with a project like this, which had a time limit, um, it's a dare. Do you do this and lose your job at the library in the, in the hopes that you will do well enough that, um, they'll recommend you for further projects and it will snowball from there as a freelancer. I thought to myself, self, I thought, yes, we take that chance. And I did. And it actually worked out. And then I was, uh, given a, Steady job at Nickelodeon Promos um, as a production assistant. And a production assistant does, well, a bunch of things. Does what I just described. Also, uh, sort of oversees voiceover editing for very basic things like, we'll be right back after this, or, you know, things like that. And then once you prove you're competent enough, you get more and more production work and essentially you become an associate producer. Uh, but instead of giving you that title, they keep you a production assistant so they can pay you a production assistant's wage. Let's see. Television is all about the honor of working in television, right? Um, but I actually got even luckier than that. I uh, made friendly with a senior producer who was really enthusiastic about my writing. And so she had me writing uh, promos for what was called the Big Help, which was um, getting kids to clean up their communities, their parks, um, to recycle, you know, that sort of thing. 
so I wrote all of these commercials and uh, we we're going to go to the Hollywood Bowl and uh, shoot them during the Nick Kids Choice Awards, cattle herding stars into a tent. I did that for one of them. And then there were others that were going to go after production and, you know, big superstars like Mel Gibson, of course. <laughs> now, I, I don't think they would have chosen Mel Gibson, but at the time, Mel Gibson was going to do one of these. Unfortunately, uh, none of them ever got that far because uh, the whole department was shut down and restructured and. Uh, and I, and my, my career at Nickelodeon went the way of the dodo bird. Um, but while I was there and while I was writing, uh, an interesting thing, apparently you're supposed to take a writing test. There's a head writer and he gives you a writing test and, and if you pass, then you get to be a writer. Well, I didn't do that because I befriended this senior producer who wanted to work with me. So I bypassed all of that. And you may wonder, how does one take such a writing test? And uh, I believe you have to be called from the uh, finest writing schools. So, or have had an internship here. So in other words, I didn't go to school for television. I didn't, um, I was a writing major in college, but not for TV and not in any prestigious writing school. It was actually a fairly crap program that I graduated from. And so here I was, I didn't take the test. I didn't come from a prestigious school. I have no, um, outside straight out of college nepotism working, working for me. I was just a a guy from a temp agency who everyone assumed had these credentials or had some sort of real TV writing experience. Um, but not true. And then when they found that out <laughs> and they found out I didn't take the writing test, boy, they were vicious. And by they, I mean the other writers because uh, you had to sort of pass your work around a table of writers and everyone took a pass at critiquing it. And when it came to my, my stuff, um, you could see that they were seething with jealousy. And I don't mean because they were critiquing me. I mean, they've really voiced like, why, why is he, it, it was that sort of thing. Like, why is this guy here? Um, not because I couldn't write, but because this was completely unfair. And even though they were where they were, they were here too. For some reason, they were jealous of me or angry with me. Um, hostile. And um, after this senior producer left the building and um, the big help was no more, Uh, I was still there at that point, but I was no longer writing. I guess I wasn't allowed to. And I remember seeing um, the new writer that they had hired who came in. And, of course, he was from, you know, writing-intensive hoity-toity college with his TV degree. And he was a complete mess. He He was a good guy. I liked him as, you know, well enough but he just always looked like he had just woken up and not in the uh, hipster way of like trying to look like that. Like, no, he had like dark circles, you know, never brushed his hair. Uh, I think he wore the same shirts every day and like pants, you know, hanging down the whole thing. Um, He looked like he just had flopped out of bed. I mean, there's nothing impressive 
about his presentation and his writing was serviceable. I mean, I wouldn't say that it was uh, better than my writing. I, I, I don't know that it was worse, but it certainly was on par. And I would say that, that I was trying to do things a little more creatively than just what was necessary. And I would say that he was doing the cut and paste thing that, you know, that probably is what you should do, you know, that, that they want you to do. So needless to say, I was the tide, the tide had turned and, and I was jealous of him. The God, why, why this unspectacular guy and not me who's already writing? Oh, that's right, because I came in through the back door and I wasn't supposed to. It was a completely unfair answer to my unfair coming in through the back door. That's one kind of jealousy uh, that I suffered. <laughs> Another, of course, is the, the common romantic relationship type jealousy. Except this was different. Uh, because... This jealousy wasn't about fairness. It was about how I felt about me. Not justice in the world, but my own self-worth. And so, in that vein, um, I would have relationships with women where I was the best friend, the one who could listen, the one you could talk to and trust and... So naturally, they would date other men and then complain to me about the other men they would date. <laughs> uh, and they were often all too willing to take advantage of my puppy love, my my fawning over them uh, by accepting my my money or my gifts or bringing them out to dinner or, you know, whatever, paying for things. As well as, of course, uh, lending them an ear and playing psychologist. Uh, and so, of course, I would do these things and tell myself what a great guy I am. But really, I at, at every turn, no matter what I told them, to the contrary, I was always thinking, this is going to win them over. This is finally going to win them over. They're going to see who I really am. They're going to love me. But it never works that way, or or rarely does it work that way. And in fact, um, you know, from their perspective, someone who is willing to do that to a boy or girl, man or woman, who they know has affection for them, uh, they know exactly what they're doing, and, and they're being manipulative and cruel. You're allowing it, or I'm, you know, in this case, I was allowing it. But they were not unconscious of my feelings, and they had no problem taking advantage. So they get kindness and free stuff, and I get hope. I get a dangling carrot. And we each play our part in that that jealousy. And um, so in that case, jealousy is this inward-turned anger. Angry at them. Angry at myself but not angry at myself for allowing this to happen. Angry at myself for being a complete piece of crap who's completely unattractive to women or to the women that I was attracted to. So that's the second type of jealousy I've experienced. And 
Um, we'll unpack all three of these. There's a third one coming up. Um, and the third one is trying to make other people jealous. Um, especially when I was a kid, I always wanted the really cool thing. Like I remember I had this bike with disc brakes, the Murray, I think it was the Murray or Murphy. I think it was the Murray street machine was the name of this bike. And it had disc brakes. And it was like, Oh, awesome. And it was like two speeds. Wow. Two. That's better than one. <laughs> uh, so it just, it was, you know, it was the, the kid's bicycle equivalent of a crappy sports car where like, it looks great and sounds great, but it's actually a heavy, clunky, uh, kind of crappy bike. I always had the the cool toys, and it's funny because I I uh, uh, grew up not not wealthy. I mean, poor initially, and then you know, middle class, I guess you would say, for most of my life. But through it all. Uh, my parents always made sure that that uh, my sister and I were taken care of at Christmas and on birthdays. You could forget about it the rest of the year. You're not getting anything. But you wait for those two days and, oh, man, it's on. And so I loved having things that other kids wanted because I guess that was my currency. Like, oh, man, look at, yeah, yeah, you guys, you should come over and try my bike. No, really, I'm just like you but with an awesome bike. Um, <laughs> I don't look down on you with your, your huffy. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. It's ridiculous how young these things start in us, right? Uh, so where does that come from? Where does that, I mean, that, obviously, if we, if we have to deconstruct that one, that is about other people building you up, right? Going, oh, wow, amazing. Like you're the, the, the quote unquote great person with the riches in a country that, of course, worships riches. But when you're a kid, um, that doesn't matter. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it's there in the background. But really, it's about the instantaneous praise that probably now is uh, taken over by Facebook likes and um, Twitter follows and things like this. Yeah, you were judged by the cool stuff you had and the cool stuff came from TV commercials <laughs> and cartoons. Uh, so that, that was the economy of childhood of trying to make people jealous. I don't know that I was ever jealous of anyone else's stuff. Although there were things that I really, really wanted that I never got, but some of those things were even just advertised on TV. Like I remember the Snoopy snow cone machine. It's like, Oh, that's still the bane of my existence. Never having that Snoopy snow cone machine. You put the ice cubes in and the snow comes out. Yum, yum. Fun is what it's all about. I mean, I remember that. Um, <laughs> in Hawaii, we call it shave ice. So I guess it's the same thing. Um, so you can't say that that was jealousy. That was just the absolute desire for, the thing that I want because the TV made it look so awesome. Um, but okay. So that's a, a very simple and basic, uh, jealousy in, you know, which is natural in kids. And then when you become an adult and you do that st uh, stuff, you become what I believe is, uh, the psychologists call a douchebag. 
I think is what that is. Because we all know that guy, right, who's got the car, uh, who's flaunting his wares, or or the woman with her jewelry, or or her, oh, look at me, I just got a facial, you know, selfies and all that thing. Like, oh, you look amazing. Oh, your amazing things, your wealth, your vast hoard of stuff. Isn't that great? I wish I had your life. That's what it's all about, whether you're six or 16 or 26 or any number of sixes, <laughs> six, 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 uh, the devil in you wants other people to want what you have normal as a kid, but a real cover up of a deficit as an adult. And the deficit is of course you, there's nothing to you inside, or at least you feel that there isn't. And so you need that constant praise. You need other people to want to be you, even though you know what they don't, which is they they don't want to be you because <laughs> it's pretty, it's pretty awful actually being you. Uh, the romantic jealousy runs deeper, right? This is an issue that you can deconstruct and uh, as we've been doing in these episodes um, where you say, okay, so why was I, why was I in these relationships where I, I would be jealous, where I would, um, well, because I was attracted to unavailable women. Why was I attracted to unavailable women? Because I wanted to be unavailable. Why did I want to be unavailable? Well, because my parents, you know, like I saw how they treated each other, the divorce, how that affected me. It created this fear of intimacy and you go on and on. Um, back as far as you can go in your family history. And then, of course, you come upon the fact that we're all stuck in this sorrow. We're all causing ourselves problems and mischief throughout the ages. This is what we do. We're all in it together, right? So, But what is it that we're in together? And in terms of jealousy, it's not just that I had this fear of intimacy. It's that how I felt about myself was that I'm a pile of crap. I'm unworthy. You know, all of those tapes, as they say. And so what do you do with that? Well, you play them <laughs> and then you play them out and you become a lie. You lie to yourself. You lie to them. And the lie is that you want them at all. Because that's not what this is about. I mean, you know, certainly I had feelings for them, deep sexual feelings and sensual feelings and the feeling of being in love and that sort of thing. But those feelings, and we're always telling ourselves in this society to trust our feelings. But can you trust your feelings when they're screwed up and they're in service to something else, to a lie? Because they were in service to a lie. The lie is that I'm trying to court anybody at all because I want a relationship. If that were true, then I would court somebody who was available. I would fall in love or in, in lust or whatever with someone who could love and lust me back. If I'm incapable of doing that, then I'm not actually doing the other. I'm not actually chasing after them, courting them. 
I'm not really waiting for them to wake up and magically want to be with me. What I'm doing is fortifying my self-identity. How I view me. That's what all my relationships are about. When you're depressed and stuck in your head, um, there is a, a form of narcissism there. Because it's when you're stuck in your head, it's complete self-involvement, right? And so other people, these relationships, they have to become like automatons in service to the person I see in the mirror. And so, you know, you create these little dramas. You say, oh, I'm really upset with her. I'm angry with him. And really, it's you you hate. And if you have any depth to you at all, of course, much of that comes from the parents, and you know that. It comes from how you were raised, how you were you know, brought up to see yourself, and then have had that reinforced maybe even with some early relationships. And then that, that sort of snowballs. But as I say, if you have any depth to you, there's another part of it. And that other part is that you, on some level, you hear this little pinging echo of a voice that's so faint that you can't make out what it's saying, but you can feel that, oh, you sure can, and that voice is saying, the self isn't real. None of this is real. And not being able to recognize what this voice is articulating and only feeling the feeling of it, you translate that as self-loathing. Not the deeper, quote-unquote, spiritual message that it actually is. And then if you're a creative type, you try to you try to get at that through writing songs or poetry or you know any number of ways that that the artists do to articulate that deep feeling beneath the self-loathing that isn't just about parents but is about the being underneath all of this frantic doing. And of course the frantic doer wants to contextualize that by saying the being who is screaming at me to come out. And that's, again, a translation from the doer. Now, that first sense of jealousy, the career jealousy, um, yes, there's parent stuff in there. Yes, there's a sense of being done wrong, injustice. But these are all smoke screens for what this is really about, which is desire. And it's funny because we'd say that the relationship jealousy is about desire, but I deeply, truly, it is not. Uh, on the surface level, sure. But with the career moves, it's all about what I want. It's my ambition, as we'll be talking about in another episode. It's that ambition to be somebody, to be recognized, to be considered an equal. And this is, of course, wrapped up in the, the attachment to privilege. I deserve this. I'm that good. And if they could only hear my words, read my writing, my comedy, they would love me. And then I'd be lovable. It's the search for the perfect woman in disguise. That same thing. Of course, if I were whole within myself, I... I wouldn't need validation, and I wouldn't need to chase after the unattainable. You might wonder, well, what about when you were a kid? 
let's not let's not glance over that when you were a kid and you wanted other kids to be jealous of you how does that relate to desire it relates to desire in the most profound way of all which is that i wanted not to be equals with other kids i wanted them to be attached to me through desire their desire for the stuff that i had And of course, you know, at that age, part of the problem is you're not a fully formed person and you're uh, with other not fully formed little people. And so what you've got in your hand, your toy, that is a representation of the thing that they would want to get to know to, to get to know you, right? Like it's a substitute for the fact that there's not much to you. And again, it's it's tragic when that happens with adults, but it makes sense in childhood. Um, you're underdeveloped. You want to make friends. So you better have something someone else wants. I mean, not always. That's not always the case, but it'll often do. <laughs> it'll do the trick. But I wanted them to be attached to me. And why did I want them to be attached to me? Not because I wanted equals. I already had friends. Why did I have to lord something over them to be better than them? I wanted power. If I could have power over the other kids, then they would never leave me. They would tell me how great I am. Basically, I wanted to be worshipped. This holdover from childhood narcissism, but also that echoing voice, that, that piece of you that is beyond the self, that piece isn't a piece. It's the whole. It's love. It's oneness. And when you're in your formative years, as with adults who are completely screwed up <laughs> and never quite made it out of certain stages of their formative years, um, that little voice gets translated not into love per se, but I want you to love me. And not oneness per se, but I want to be the one. I want to be the nucleus around which you spin. I want to be God. The self is a mini monster maker until it isn't. And you know, it's been said from Buddha, Buddha on up that we are all bound in sorrow. Sorrow is common to the whole of humanity. And that sounds pretty awful, right? Until you think about what is sorrow doing? Sorrow, by its very nature, contains the seed of its own demise. Because no one wants to feel sorrow. So, if the thing that is common to all of us is something none of us want to feel, then sorrow is urging us on to transform out of sorrow. And we always try to do this with our sense of self, which is the sorrow. Or it's creating the sorrow in in all of these myriad forms. So maybe if we just understand these forms, as we're doing on this show, maybe just through that simple articulation of the problem and complete understanding, not just intellectually, but through your being, understanding that this is the case, perhaps... That is the transformative moment.
and it happens on its own. When the doer sees through the doer self and relaxes into being. Perhaps then, this lifetime quest for being lovable transforms into being loving. Who are you then? Certainly not the one who cares about what you look like to others. Because you're no longer one trapped in the concept of self and other.